Welcome to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandu. In this episode, I travel to the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. in America to speak with Tanvi Madan and discuss India's external relations and global role. India is home to the world's largest democracy. It is the world's second most populous country, a nuclear power, and one of the fastest growing economies. It seems to have great power potential and is aspiring to become a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. India's foreign policy is characterized by a strong belief in multilateralism and democratic values, as well as solidarity with developing countries. But is the country ready to play a bigger role in global politics in pursuit of its national interests and emerging global challenges? At the moment, India seems to be bogged down in its own region. The government is concerned over increasing Chinese engagement in the Indian Ocean region, especially through economic investments in infrastructure projects and political influence in India's neighboring countries. India also fears further expansion of Chinese military power in traditionally Indian spheres of influence. But the Sino-Indian relationship is not the only challenge facing India's foreign policy elite. What about India's relations with the United States? What are India's objectives and priorities? What role can India play on the global stage in the coming years? These are some of the questions we put forward to our guest today. Our guest is Tanvi Madan, director of the India Project and a fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings Institution. Tanvi, welcome and thank you for joining us on Global Futures and for hosting us at the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much, Joel. Welcome back to Brookings and I uh, hope you have a great week here. Uh, since we're sitting here in Brookings, uh, in the Washington D.C., in Washington D.C., the heart of politics in the U.S., I have to start by asking: How would you describe the current state of uh, India-U.S. relationship? I'd say to put uh, to put it in kind of three words, if words, it would be healthy with uncertainties. And the reason I say that is because you have to separate out, I would say, the defense and security space and perhaps the economic space. Overall, compared to a number of other countries' relationships with the U.S., the U.S.-India relationship has actually seen a lot of continuity from the previous administrations. But we've also seen kind of relatively, yes, a lower profile. We don't necessarily think that's a bad thing these days. You want to be out of the news, that's a good thing, because usually you're in the news when something bad is happening. Um, so I think relatively, if you'd asked, if you ask Indian officials today, compared to even a year ago before Prime Minister Modi had visited here uh, in Washington, they'd say in many spaces they're actually more positive, uh, more reassured than they were. But there are a lot of uncertainties, not just bilateral ones, but uncertainties about the U.S. is regional and global role that are creating some complications for India. Just very briefly on the defense and security space, we've seen continued cooperation. Uh, this administration has actually very squarely uh, put India in the kind of as an anchor, as they've called it, of its Indo-Pacific strategy. I think we're still waiting to see some more kind of operational action or some of the actions related to the strategy. But even in the framing, the fact that there's no talk of Indo-Asia Pacific or Indian Ocean and Asia Pacific re regions, they've embraced the concept of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and so, so I think at least in mental framing, in strategic framing, not just when an administration uses it, and this was reflected in its national security strategy, uh, but also more broadly kind of in the strategic community, we, we do start to see kind of India now much more part of the Asia discussions. I think so we've seen also bilateral, the two plus two dialogue, the inaugural first dialogue. 
uh, between the foreign and defense ministers it was supposed to happen in the middle of last month. It's got postponed probably this summer. But even things like that show that on the defense and security side, there's a lot of action. I think on the economic side, there are a fair number of frictions, though, and we'll see how that plays out. You mentioned the previous administrations. How would you compare the current India-U.S. relationship with that of, let's say, the Obama uh, or George W. Bush uh, presidencies? I think one thing that the um, Obama, uh, well, the George W. Bush and Obama presidencies had in common, which was this kind of long-term view of India, which was that an India investment it was kind of a strategic view, which is that India might be a, it is worth making an investment in India, a long-term investment that was going to pay off, even if not today, even if not tomorrow, but down the line, that it was in American interest to support the rise of this uh, large Asian democracy. Uh, for various reasons, one of which was uh, that by its very nature, by just being India and succeeding, it would serve as a balance and a contrast uh, to that other large Asian country that is not a democracy. What you have seen, I think, what there are questions about, and in some ways, we, you know, President Trump has different reasons for actually having a fairly positive view generally of Prime Minister Modi in India. In many parts of the administration, you still do see that long-term strategic view. But I think there is a sense uh, that with this president, things are much more transactional, that he will want to see short-term returns. And so you've seen Indian officials kind of try to highlight how, for example, India is helping uh, support or create American jobs by buying a lot of oil and gas and defense equipment from the U.S. or with Indian companies investing here. So they've had to kind of make that case more because I think they recognize that the president himself, I think it's different perhaps with the rest of the administration, who still sees there is continuity. Uh, but I think with the president, they do recognize that this might be more, they need to be or think more transactionally, or at least in terms of highlighting India's utility to somebody like that. And that is different uh, from the previous administration. So is it fair to say that the Trump administration doesn't really have any interest or plans to support India to play a bigger role on the global stage, if we're talking about long-term political view? To the contrary, I would say the administration as a whole, and I think on this, because he's had a relatively positive view of India, President Trump has kind of gone along with it, is that they have actually, as I was mentioning, through this kind of Indo-Pacific strategy and and highlighting, not just highlighting India's role, but actually uh, saying that they, they would like to see India do more and be very much part of kind of uh, shaping the rules-based order, supporting the rules-based order, and India has said that they plan to do so. Um, so I think you've seen this particularly in the region, in kind of the Indian Ocean region. Uh, you've seen it kind of in India being more vocal on its stand on the South China Sea. You've seen it, for example, take the lead on an issue like the Belt and Road Initiative, which arguably India was one of the first countries to stand alone and say, listen, we have serious problems with this initiative, and these are the reasons why we do uh, they released a statement after they decided not to go to the Belt and Road Forum that was held a year ago uh, in China. And, and they really did take the lead on that. And we've seen over the last year, whether it's Europe uh, or the U.S., that these, some of these concerns have now been echoed uh, in many parts of the world. So Trump administration is indeed, in that sense, supported that. I think in some ways, though, you do see the president at least put it in much more transactional terms, which is a good Indian economy is not about kind of necessarily creating Indian strength, but about a market for American goods. So it's been much more, he's been much more kind of vocal on that front in terms of form rather than in substance itself. 
you still see kind of uh, this desire. And I think if you read the national security strategy in particular, you can argue that it's not reflective of the president's view. But in terms of the administration's, uh, and you've seen this from Secretary Defense Secretary Mattis's uh, views as well, he has very much said that you know, India is part of their plan uh, because it can also, the other term that President Trump likes, he, it can burden share. Let's talk about India's global ambitions for a moment and juxtapose it with its regional realities. Consecutive Indian governments have voiced their ambition to play a bigger and more prominent global role, from getting a seat at United Nations Security Council and becoming a member of the nuclear supplier group to having uh, more voting shares in the IMF. At the same time, Indian government is bogged down by regional instability. I'm thinking about Afghanistan and Pakistan, and growing concerns within the Indian government and by the expert community that the country is losing influence to China when it comes to relationships with its neighbors. Here I'm thinking about Sri Lanka, the Maldives, and even Nepal, where China is seen as offering and delivering economic and other forms of development. Can India imagine to gain more global political clout despite being positioned in a geopolitically unstable region? So I think there are two questions here, or two ways to answer it. One is this question of India's region. I think one thing you've seen Indian governments for years recognize is that India is kind of the largest country in the neighborhood. It cannot escape its neighborhood in some ways. It is where it is, and that it can be, it doesn't want to be in a situation where it's it's like Gulliver trying to get up and is tied down by all these Lilliputians around. That it, if India needs to play a larger role, it could do so better if it has a more stable neighborhood, if it has better relations with its neighbors. But I think there's, there's a, and that's so it's better to actually take the region along with it and not kind of, it can't escape it. So, you know, take everybody along for the ride. It'll make the region better. It'll actually be able to, in fact, be a springboard for India. But I think there are a couple of other things that, and so I think there, there is that aspect. But I think in terms of the trade-offs, I think India doesn't have the luxury, and has arguably never had it, but I think particularly because of its geography, its links to the international uh, landscape, whether it's because of its economic needs, its energy needs, just where it is, if you look geographically in the middle of everything that's going on these days. Uh, after all, we forget that India's uh, very close to the Middle East too, is that India can't afford to kind of say that, okay, you know what, we're going to wait for the international stuff later, that we'll do the domestic stuff first or the regional stuff first. I think India is going to have to, and they'd recognize this, uh, walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, the second aspect is this question of what is India's neighborhood or region anymore? Earlier, it used to be kind of the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation Countries, which was the immediate neighbors, but not even including India, China, which is the country with which uh, India is its largest border. So I think now you've seen that the regions are kind of blending into each other, really, or the, the lines are blending between the regions. Uh, where do you draw the line for India between South and Southeast Asia? It's kind of, is Myanmar South Asia or is it Southeast Asia China? China today in some ways is a South Asian country more than it used to be. Uh, and same thing with the Middle East. You know, it, uh, Iran is active in Afghanistan where India has interests and, you know, they cooperate, have cooperated in the past there. So I think one thing is India doesn't have the ability to say it has to do all of it at once. It's a question of building in a kind of policymaking capacity to be able to deal with both seeking that large global role and at the same time, uh, managing uh, to cre generate more stability in the region. Well, the lines may be blending, but one thing is quite clear. We've seen Chinese investments and military projection growing in the region, especially in the Indian Ocean region. And 
I'm also thinking about the China-backed Belt and Road Initiative, which you mentioned earlier, and this focuses on connectivity and cooperation between Eurasian countries and China. Will India take a more assertive or perhaps even a more aggressive approach in the region to counterbalance China's influence? I think you've already seen India have to up its game in the region. You've seen, for example, you know, the smaller countries in India's neighborhood now have choice. Um, if India says no to a project, they can go to China with it. If India um, says, you know, to Maldives, we don't like what you're doing in terms of domestic politics, in terms of kind of moving back on democracy, the Mal- Maldivians who earlier might have said that, okay, they're going to reverse some steps because not just India, but Europe and the US was saying as much, they now have a patron in China. And um, so they turn to them. So I think, you know, the, it, there is a recognition that China's a reality in the uh, immediate neighborhood, both the maritime neighborhood and the territorial neighborhood, whether it's Nepal or Bangladesh and other places. And that India, so India can't wish it away. It also can't put in the kind of scale of investment that China can, at least it can't do it alone. So what India has been doing is, at least in its own region, it is working to develop alternatives with countries like Japan, with perhaps even the U.S. down the line, but also kind of having to develop now relationships in these countries that they find that show that they are different from the Chinese. And the other thing, and I think you've seen this in the last few weeks, signs of this in the last few weeks is, or months, is a real recognition that they need to deliver and deliver fast on the projects already that they have promised to these uh, neighbors. They have not had a good uh, implementation record. You see the government quite focused on that now. The second thing that India is doing is actually becoming more active in China's neighborhood in Southeast Asia, where there is more of a demand for Indian activity and action. And I think the third thing you're seeing is kind of in, especially in the Indian Ocean region, you're seeing India work with not just in connectivity, but kind of going to your mention of kind of China being more active in the naval space is, uh, you know, trying to increase Indian capabilities and infrastructure, naval infrastructure in the Indian Ocean region, but also working very closely, not just with the US and Japan that I mentioned, Australia and France as well. So I think you there is a recognition of the kind of trends you're talking about, but they haven't kind of given up the region to China, so to speak. I think they are going to, perhaps in some ways, you could see maritime security cooperation between them and anti- uh, they've, they've cooperated in anti-piracy operations, etc. But also contesting that influence where they see it fit. We'll come to maritime security cooperation in just a second. And I want to stay with alternative options that you mentioned for India's neighbors. What about the India-Japan's Asia-Africa growth corridor? Can that be a real alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative? Because most of us who follow this, we hear much more about this Belt and Road Initiative as opposed to the uh, bilateral cooperation between India and Japan to offer the countries in the region this other alternative with the Asian-Africa corridor. So one thing that Beijing did very successfully over the last few years is really kind of take a lot of projects that were already in the works and kind of put it under this umbrella group. They've done a great PR job in shaping the narrative on the Belt and Road. But the Japanese in particular, I think, you know, there's some new kind of databases out there kind of tracking this and show how much, if not equally, that the Japanese are, are engaged in many of these areas, in some cases even more. And so I think Japan on its own is is very engaged in a number of these areas. And I think the idea behind India and Japan working together is that Japan can bring the capital, which India doesn't have in that scale. It can, you know, it has these infrastructure kind of experiences, but also financing that India doesn't necessarily have access to. What India can bring, particularly a place like 
uh, Africa is local know-how. They have been very active in, in especially East Africa, so kind of the Indian Ocean Rim countries. We will see whether they can be effective. I think what they are trying to show, and the Japanese particularly have been vocal about this, as is, have Indian officials, which is that it can't be, it's not about necessarily saying, you can't go to a country and say, don't do this project with China unless you can offer an alternative. So some of it is actually saying, okay, listen, here are some alternative projects. We're not going to build a port next door just because there's a port. The idea is, okay, here is something, It should be. De- there are certain factors it should meet. It should be demand-driven. It should be transparent. It should not cause unnecessary debt obligations. So some of it is about new projects, offering projects. Some of it is actually helping these countries demand more of the Chinese projects. And so make China up its game as well. And so I think we'll, we'll wait and see uh, how this cooperation goes. We're, we're seeing Japan-India conversations not just on... In the you know kind of on the African side, but the Asia part has been in, in Myanmar, in Bangladesh, in Sri Lanka, even in Southeast Asia to some extent. So I think it's too early to say, but I think there it is very much a possibility that this can succeed, and I think it's worth trying anyway. Let's stay in the region for one more question. How would you assess the quadrilateral security dialogue or quad that's made up of the US, Japan, India, and Australia, something you just mentioned earlier, that is also meant to maintain a rules-based order in the region? What do you? How would you assess it? So I think at the moment what we've seen is uh, the revival of the quadrilateral grouping uh, and essentially consultations in Manila in November, 10 years after they first happened. It was kind of suspended after kind of a one meeting in 2007. They haven't scheduled another meeting yet. It might be possible that the consultations will just take place every year on the sidelines of kind of the East Asia Summit, etc., because all four are there. I, I think, you know, it's it's a question of, I don't see this as an alliance, as some have called it. The Chinese call it an Asian NATO. It's not that. Uh, what it is is four countries who are democratic, who have interests in the region, trying to see kind of share their perceptions, including of China, but also figure out kind of where they can work together, uh, whether it's regional connectivity, whether it's maritime security. So I know people are critical. They aren't going out there and kind of doing, a ma- you know, um, the, that they haven't turned the Malabar, US, Japan, India trilateral exercise into a quadrilateral exercise. Uh, but what this does do is if they decide to do something in terms of not just an exercise, but like they did after the tsunami in the mid 2000s, actually work together, this lays the basis for it. Uh, it it creates a structure, it creates the habits of cooperation, and you could actually see them each bringing to the table issues. Uh, for example, during the last session, you know, the U.S. wanted to talk about North Korea. This is a good place to talk about it. So I know kind of consultations sound quite boring, but I think it's important to do, uh, particularly for, for, for countries that don't do this in another uh, platform. There are a lot of overlapping trilaterals, uh, there are bilaterals that each one has. So I think this is... It is not the forum, uh, but it is a forum, and I think it's an important one. I hope it does continue in at least the consultation forum. Let's zoom out for a moment and talk about India's other multilateral partnerships. India, together with Brazil, Russia, China, and South Africa, form the BRICS countries, a group that was considered to be the five major emerging national economies. How much political and economic benefit has BRICS membership afforded India? I think if you'd asked Indian officials and analysts about BRICS five or six years ago, you'd have got a very different answer. I think a couple of things have happened where the sheen has worn off a little in terms of how India sees this. One is kind of because China-India relations were essentially not doing so well since about, I mean, they've they've been problems since about 2008, 2009, uh, but it's been a fairly tense relationship till very recently. Uh, the, The last three years had been quite tense. And so Essentially, India found that 
China was dominating BRICS, but also Russia had kind of started taking China's side because of their closer relationship. So I think, you know, it did, some of the China-India problems showed up kind of in the BRICS setting. But the other thing that had happened is, uh, you know, the kind of the emerging markets, uh, especially Brazil and South Africa, weren't doing as well as they had been when they were kind of, bro- you know, th- th- this was really taking off. Having said that, I think you have seen an attempt, I think where India finds this useful is one, it is a forum to actually engage with these countries for a lot of working level interaction, but also in the cultural space, etc. These are not countries that actually have a lot of interaction, including at the working level in government, but also, you know, in terms of uh, their kind of their civil societies, etc. So like a think tanks forum, that kind of thing means that you do have engagement over time. It also means that there is a forum, for example, if nothing else, BRICS was useful, perhaps, or played a role, the BRICS summit in China last year, in Xiamen, played a role in helping resolve or, or, or setting a timeline for the you know kind of resolution of the Doklam China-India border incident. It was important uh, for President Xi to have President Modi come for it. And so it did might have played a role in or at least we think we know that it played a role in them saying they really needed to solve this problem. So I think it's one more forum for engagement for China, India. But, uh, you know, people had and it can kind of sometimes wear into kind of anti-West discussions. But we've actually seen India also shape that language where now it's come, you know, been less of that anti-West forum that some had imagined it would be. We can talk about this, I think, for the whole day, but uh, unfortunately, our time is coming up to an end. So I'll leave you with this one final question. There's been a lot of chatter about a changing global order with the rise of China, and we're seeing a resurgent Russia. Now, let's fast forward and look towards the year 2030. Where do you see India in the supposed new global order, and what role would India be playing? I think the historian in me says that the answer has to be, it depends on India's Uh, ability to develop its own capabilities. And I mean this in the broader sense of the term, that a strong India will be able to shape its destiny and its role in that world order. And in fact, it will determine, the strength of India will determine its role. But that means having to develop, strong India means capabilities, not just military, which is very important, economic, which will also help the uh, military capabilities, social, what we call social infrastructure, health education, so a population that is able to take advantage and actually drive that economy. And at the end of the day, also things like governance structures, the strength of Indian institutions, but also kind of bureaucratic structures. So I think the role, India is large enough as a country and potentially strong enough by 2030, that if it can develop these capabilities, it can essentially then shape the order in the sense of having it suit Indian interests, which would partly mean if, if the current trajectory is uh, known, that it would play a larger role in being a net security provider in the region. It would seek a multipolar Asia and not just a multipolar world. It would seek to play a role in issues like kind of play a leading role in maritime security, in providing kind of global public goods. But it would also have to play a role in things like taking the lead on climate change and issues like that. Um, I think it would play a role in kind of energy security as well. So I think India can shape up to be one of the leading powers in the world. It, you know, it has all the uh, makings of being a kind of major power, one of perhaps the few major powers and really kind of a rightful, if you could kick somebody else off the UN Security Council, even the kind of 
P5, essentially, if you were creating a new P5 in 2030, nobody would imagine perhaps not having India there just by sheer size. But I think India could be uh, um, play a much more kind of stronger role, more burden sharing, more actually taking the lead if it can get its domestic kind of strengthening right. I think it also, of course, the kind of role and the kind of order that exists will also depend on given India is, what the state of China is, what China has done, state of Indian partnerships. So I think India has the ability to play a much larger role, and it will play the kind of role that essentially, like every great power has, which is to protect its own interests, its people, its facilities. And uh, But again, it can do that, it can shape its own destiny, if it has domestic strength. So at the end of the day, that has to be a priority for any Indian policymaker and leader over the next uh, 15 years. We'll have to wait and see till 2030 and see where India stands. Until then, I want to say thank you very much, Tanvi, for joining us on the Global Futures Podcast. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Joel. This episode of Global Futures was presented by Joel Sandu, with research support from Yulia Reichler and produced by Sonia Sugrabova from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest was Tanvi Madan. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.